Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, though a little bit nervous. The first reported case of corona in Northern California just hit, which was a little bit troubling. Yeah. Uh, coronavirus is a type of virus. Uh, thank you. Oh, sorry. No, it's been a thing because I've been writing about it in for a while. And it's interesting. I think that maybe there's been a benefit of being in Taiwan. I think I've been a little bit of uh, ahead of the curve on this, you know, thinking about interruptions to supply chain. And one of the great things with Daily Update podcast is can have interviews. And interviews can not just be like transcriptions, but they actually have people on there. And then the first one I did was a guy named Dan Wong, who's in China and studies supply chains. And so we had a great discussion about that a couple of weeks ago. And now I think you're starting to see that sort of seep out that this is going to be a bigger thing than expected. I believe the official name is something along the lines of like COVID-19. People call it novel coronavirus, which basically just means new coronavirus, which to my, isn't very helpful either. I don't know. We had SARS. We had MERS. I don't know why we couldn't come up with a new sort of catchy acronym. I think COVID-19 is the working name right now. Very good. Well, the first reported case in Northern California. So a little bit nerve-wracking. But you're right. It's been interesting to see this play out. And it was like what was discussed during that interview. I feel like there's a chance that what happened in 2008 with a financial crisis, like we're about to experience the equivalent of that on the supply chain front. But I guess we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. My sense is I think China is very focused on getting factories up and running. I think there may be a sense that this is uncontainable or the time for containment was passed. Again, I think not being able to express oneself is not always a good thing, to say the least. The other problem is it's very hard to sort of rely on Chinese numbers sort of generally, but I think particularly in this case, my suspicion is this virus is more viral than we think and maybe less fatal because those are interconnected. If more people have it and they just don't have symptoms or they don't visit a hospital or they're not checked, by definition, that means the fatality rate is lower because the only people getting checked have serious symptoms, right? It's weird. If you think about it, a virus that kills people very quickly is a very poor virus as far as like evolution is concerned. Yeah. You need a host. That's right. That's why the common cold is like the best virus ever because it just gets people sick and they don't actually die and then they just pass it on to everyone else. Again, I'm not saying the coronavirus is the common cold by any means. It certainly appears, even in this more optimistic framing, to have you know a fairly higher fatality rate than the common flu or whatever. But I wouldn't be surprised, particularly now that it's into other countries with maybe more more robust reporting structures and healthcare systems that we end up finding out it is actually pretty viral, which is bad news. It's going to spread everywhere, but it is maybe a little less fatal than the number suggesting out of China, which is also a good thing because that means fewer people are going to die. So I'm pro fewer people dying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody is, but I think there's a segue here. How you present has a big impact on your chances of success going forward. I don't know. I, I mean, as the king of segues, can I show you how it's done? <laughs> oh, please. So the CDC today just released some guidelines about, you know, if you're wearing masks, like, for example, you probably shouldn't wear a full beard. In other words, you should shave your beard. You should use a razor. And that's an opportunity to sort of talk about razors and acquisitions thereof. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll leave you on the segues for now. <laughs>
So this week I wrote about an acquisition that happened a year ago, back in 2019. I think not too much thought was given about it at the time, which was Edgewell Personal Care Company, more commonly known as the makers of Schick Razors, acquired Harry's. Actually, people listening to this podcast are probably more likely to be aware of Harry's than most other people because this is one of the OG podcast sponsors. Everyone's heard the, you know, our factory in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. And they started out as this sort of direct to consumer offering where you could subscribe to your razor. Again, it's a model that makes sense. You wear out razor blades, you need new ones. Instead of going to the store and having to get them, you can get them shipped to you directly and at significantly lower cost than the incumbents. And they're not the only ones. There's another company, Dollar Shaving Club, which was in this space. And I wrote about in 2015, when they were acquired, they were acquired by Unilever. And what made this different is that Unilever didn't have a shaving business. So they acquired them. No big deal. It was an opportunity to write an interesting article about the ways that you could build these companies online. And then look forward this year. The reason to write about this deal now is the FTC came in and said, nope can't do it. Schick cannot acquire Harry's because it will be anti-competitive. And frankly, the FTC's reasoning is pretty compelling. We'll link to the article on Strategy where I quoted a fair bit from it just to sort of really land the point. But their big focus was, okay, it was great that you were online with Dollar Shave Club. But once you started selling in stores, they started in Target a couple of years ago and then recently in Walmart, there was a significant competitive reaction by Gillette and Schick, where they lowered prices in response and they offered more promotions. And it clearly had an impact on the market. And so the FTC argued Schick, Edgewell, the parent company, is acquiring Harry's not simply because of the cost synergies or the management expertise that they claimed, but rather to remove a competitive threat so they can go back to having very expensive razor systems in Walmart and Target and other offline retailers. I think I agree with you. From the FTC perspective, that is a very compelling argument. It's got to feel, if you're Harry's, having seen Dollar Shave Club getting sucked up by Unilever, it's got to feel like a bit of an unfair gut punch though, right? Yeah, it's an interesting point. This wasn't the point of the article, but I did sort of refer back to First Do No Harm, which we discussed last week. And there's some very clear sort of issues that come up with this rejection. I mean, the first one is that If you're an investor thinking about investing in a direct-to-consumer company, this has to give you pause because, you know, the direct-to-consumer business is kind of a internet version of the CPG business, CPG being consumer packaged goods. So Gillette, for example, is owned by P&G, which is the granddaddy of CPG companies. Unilever is another one. Edgewell is actually a bit of a edge case because they're a single product CPG company, which is relatively rare. Why is it rare? Because there's huge returns that come to scale. There's huge returns, not just in terms of management, not just in terms of production, but also the sort of key point of leverage for CPG companies is shelf space. This idea that you have a place in the store where users can access your brands and you can leverage that to get other brands in and expand your presence. And then you advertise it on TV. Again, a scale play. These are companies that are all about scale. And the implication of this being an industry that's all about scale is that there's not that many players in the industry. Because like, if there's a real path to scale, that means there's massive benefits to sort of consolidation generally. And then also, 
to launch your own brands that will take over that shelf space, it tends towards a few large companies. It follows, though, that there's not that many companies to acquire these DTC companies. And if it's made the case that actually, if you launch in the DTC space, the FTC is going to regard you as a challenger driving lower prices and will not allow you to be acquired, that means your only viable outcome is to somehow IPO and challenge P&G in the long run. Again, that's great if that happens, but the odds of that happening are dramatically lower than sort of developing and building a brand and a product that consumers really value. Yeah. So one lens on this is obviously you want to look at the market and you want to do what's best in this specific market given the circumstances. But there is definitely the lens that you just described, which is what are the incentives we're having on the various players in the industry and how do we make sure we're not creating perverse incentives such that, yeah, we do the right thing here, but like, as you say, we end up doing harm further down the road. And reading the reasoning from the FTC, I wasn't sure whether it would result in companies not wanting to go head to head against the incumbents or whether it would be a different version of perversion, perhaps not as bad in that it would be the case that they would be dissuaded from launching retail businesses. The fact that it was in the specific traditional old school retail channel that was the thing that caused the additional problems for them. And if they just stayed online, then that might have looked more like the Unilever Dollar Shave Club example. That's exactly right. So that's the second disincentive, right? To sort of reframe what you said, it feels like they were punished for going into bricks and mortar and not just staying online, right? And again, if you back up and narrowly makes a lot of sense, but you back up and look at a big picture, it's like, wait, is this the outcome we wanted? So we have two outcomes. One, investors are absolutely disincentivized from investing in this sector. And number two, the companies are disincentivized from expanding and meeting consumers in as many channels as possible because it just limits their options and their outcomes. And it's kind of like, because we want, theoretically, a P&G challenger, we're effectively closing off every other possibility, but that makes it much less likely that anyone ever even takes the chance to challenge P&G in the long run. Right. Because you know, if you play in this space, you have to go all the way to becoming the full-on P&G challenger, not just that Harry's is, but like you said, to the point of becoming the next big consumer packaged goods company, like it's got to go all the way. It becomes a binary outcome. It's either zero or a hundred. And obviously when you make a binary like that, it's a lot harder to make it all the way to a hundred or we'd have more CPG companies. Right. And in that case, what is the competitive advantage relative to PNG? If the big thing in CPG is scale and <laughs> you can't be a niche player, then, you know, how are you even going to get there? It's a real problem. It's a real challenge when paradigms shift. Because again, this is why I put so much of the FTC argument on there. It makes total sense, right? But the problem is it doesn't really accommodate a different paradigm and a different business model. Now, this applies to the FTC. It also applies to Harry's. And I think it's worth exploring why it is that Harry's felt the need to go into bricks and mortar. And they're not the only ones. Like there's lots of these DTC companies that are opening up stores that are going into Walmart, going into Target. And I think that is also another question that's worth sort of thinking about and unpacking and was sort of the big focus of this article. Yes, let's do it. So back in 2015, and this was in the sort of run-up to aggregation theory, where I've talked about before, there's like a series of articles where 
I was like, boom, 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 like putting all these pieces together and then sort of package it together. But the most important one I've mentioned before was this idea of the conservation of attractive profits, which is from Professor Christensen. And he put this in his second book, which was The Innovator Solution, which is interesting because The Innovator Solution also contains the theory of sort of low-end disruption and modularity versus integration, which, you know, obviously I sort of attacked and thought was misapplied in the case of the iPhone. And I think rightly so, but it's a testament to the point that I'm looking to argue and debate with Professor Christensen or was looking to in the interest of figuring out the truth, not in saying like, you don't know what you're talking about, which I think has been a mistake of some of his critics. And this is a perfect example where this is probably the single most or one of the most important pieces of aggregation theory and of my general thinking about markets. And it's from the same book where we started this podcast because I was saying that it's wrong. So anyhow, this idea of the conservation of attractive profits, which I believe he actually later renamed to the conservation of modularity, which I don't know, I could go either way in the name, but neither here nor there, is this idea that if you have a value chain, the company that extracts the most value from that value chain, I'm using the word value a lot, is the integrated player. So they put like two or three pieces of the value chain together. And what happens is the value chain sort of organizes itself around that integrated player. And it will organize itself naturally into modular pieces because you know it's like squeezing a balloon. So I think I've used this analogy on this podcast before, actually. But if you have like a long balloon and you squeeze one part, the airs flow out to the other parts. And it's not actually sustainable to have squeezes in multiple places because the balloon's going to pop. And so you end up with an integrated player that captures most of the value because they become essential to the value chain. And then modular commoditized pieces sort of fill in around that. And what can happen in a paradigm shift is basically it's like you're squeezing a different part of the balloon. And so the previously integrated part gets broken into pieces and becomes modularized. And then the new player that integrated a different part of the value chain starts to extract the profits. So the example in the book that I think is perfect for this, it talks about the PC versus the BlackBerry. Well, we can use iPhone because it's the exact same idea. So in that case, we had a modular system. Every time with the PC being modular, but the integrated OS and the integrated processor. And then you had the OEMs around that putting it together. You had the applications sitting on top of it that were all modular. And you had Windows and Intel, which were kind of Wintel, like the way it actually functioned is that was like one big integrated piece. But they extracted all of the profit out of the PC. What happened with the BlackBerry and then later the iPhone is that what mattered when it came to the processor in particular shifted and the OS, you know, the OS had to be acclimated for touch and the processor had to be acclimated for battery life and power per watt as opposed to pure power. And so the way you would get that all working is to have an entirely integrated system. So Apple coming along with the iPhone, the entire thing integrated. What people forget, though, is that we think about the iPhone as being integrated, but that does not mean it doesn't have major parts that are modularized. In the case of the iPhone, the processor was modularized. It was not a combined design manufacturing fab piece from Intel where you sort of took the performance as it was. It was a ARM processor that was much more limited, much more tuned to the use case. And obviously, over time, Apple has gone even deeper into that and tying it directly to sort of the OS. But it was an ARM piece. It was with multiple parts in the manufacturing, the components. Those bits were all modularized in a way that they weren't necessarily in the PC. And then Apple took that with its custom OS and integrated it all together. And then Apple reaped all the benefits from sort of that value chain. And obviously, it's shared over time with Android, but you get the point. The issue is 
that the point of modularity and the point of integration changed between the PC and the phone. And that shifted who collected all the profit. And by extension, sort of addition to shift who collect the profit, but also diminish those that previously accrued tons of profit. I tried to explain something very complicated. I'm looking at the illustration on my site that makes it, I think, much clearer to see. Mm. It's harder to use my words, but did I do a good job? I think you did. And the obvious parallel is like the internet's doing the same thing inside of retail, whereas there were things that were incredibly important to integrate over the top of, and there were modular pieces that sat around. The internet's changed that. Right. Another thing I've noted before is one reason I like to write about media is not just because I'm in the media, but the media was a leading indicator of all these sorts of things happening. And there it's a great example. Your newspaper, local newspaper, integrated their publisher and delivery trucks with the actual editorial, right? And their value and moat was in owning that infrastructure to get a paper in front of people's eyeballs. And that let them integrate advertising with that. When the internet undid the importance of having a printing press and delivery trucks, suddenly what happened was that integration completely fell apart and they were left just being a publisher of editorial that sure, more people than ever read newspapers, right? It was a huge boon, but they were completely unable to monetize it because they didn't have any point of integration. Meanwhile, you had Google and Facebook having all the audience that wanted to find stuff to read integrating that with their discovery mechanisms, and then they could add the advertising in front of them there. And it's a good example of how the value could just totally shift. And it's weird because this is why it's so important to understand your business. Publishers thought the web was amazing because we can reach so many more people, right? And what journalists wouldn't want to be read by so many more people, but (laughs) nothing comes for free. Absolutely. And I mean, like you think about it from the advertiser's perspective, they love this product because as opposed to like this broad brush or shotgun thing where you target a geography because that was the control of the distribution mechanism and it was a very blunt instrument, you went from that down to this incredibly targeted, you can pick individual groups, you can pick characteristics. And not only that, you can track it through a purchase. Like from an advertiser perspective, why would you go to this old thing when you can have this new thing? Right. That's the thing. I mean, newspapers were actually terrible advertising vehicles. Like They were just the least worst option if you wanted to sort of reach someone at scale relatively inexpensively. Uh, I can At least I can reach everyone in San Francisco broadly. Yeah. Like the internet's completely upended it. It's like this incredible level of targeting, but in the same way that you just described that happening for the media. And I think that's valuable. And the fact that we touched on advertising is valuable because we might come back to it, but it's happened the same way in CPG. You think about these big consumer packaged goods companies and what they had. And you talked a little bit before about the scale and how scale benefited. Well, it it definitely benefited with marketing, especially marketing along these very blunt channels, because you just wanted to block as many people as possible. It wasn't a precision one shot, one kill to a person type advertising. You were blasting everything and hoping something hit. But it was also the case with shelf space because you're in a world with finite shelf space and you wanted to be a big enough player that you could go into a supermarket and you could say, give us this or we're going to give this to a competitor or give us this and we'll give you a bigger discount or whatever. And being at scale, they could only afford to deal with so many of these people. Being at scale gave them a huge advantage. And similarly, on the other end, obviously, the R&D and manufacturing, 
because of the shelf space being constrained, they were focused on R&D and manufacturing that would target as broad a number of people as possible. It was designed to target the average consumer. And you can start to see how the internet completely upends that. The internet allows you to target people specifically. You don't need shelf space. You can bypass that. You can start to create direct-to-consumer. And not that necessarily that it happened with Harry's that they played like this, because with razors, it was the case that they had 10 blades on the thing and it was completely over-serving. But you see these other consumer companies arising where they're targeting specific niches of populations that have different needs in terms of healthcare or things they appreciate or whatever. And they don't need the retail channels and they don't need the traditional marketing channels and they need a lot less capital to get started. There's a couple of points I want to touch on there. One I think is underappreciated is the degree to which all aspects of a successful business work together. So in the case of CPG, the fact that television advertising works at scale matter the fact that manufacturing works at scale and their R&D worked at scale and securing shelf space worked at scale. And you think about the shelf space, it worked to have large big box retailers like Walmart or Target because it's easier for these large corporations to interface with each other on that level. And this is a point I made talking about this entire sort of post-World War II order of these big multinational corporations. It's all connected. All this stuff works together. The TV industry and the CPG companies and the big box retailers, all this stuff is interconnected because it all made sense at scale. And this is why the internet is such a challenge. So there's two parts. One, where's the internet impact? Well, in part, it's not there because the entire world as it was is so interconnected and related to each other that they kind of are sticking together. That's the reason why television advertising, despite the fact that, you know, the traditional TV viewing is plummeting, has stayed strong. Why? Because there's nowhere else for these folks to go. Netflix doesn't offer mass market advertising. Like, what are they going to do? Yes, they're running ads on Facebook, but it turns out that Facebook with its fine targeting isn't particularly useful to CPGs of the world because their products are not meant to pursue pursue niche customers that are meant to appeal to broad demographics. And so, yes, they're on Facebook, but it's not the most efficient use of their dollars in contrast to a Harry's or a Stratechery that's very finely focused, very finely targeted, much narrower, and can reach people without any of the assumptions of scale or the assumptions of sort of interfacing with large corporations. And that's the thing about Facebook that I didn't appreciate for a long time is a lot of the Facebook growth and a lot of the Google growth, frankly, was not brand advertising coming from TV and going onto Facebook, it was actually new companies that were built around Facebook assumptions. Remember back in the day, people would criticize Facebook. Oh, all your money is coming from app developers advertising their apps. And that was meant as a point of criticism. In retrospect, that was a point of strength. It showed that Facebook was facilitating the creation of new industries and reaping the benefits for having done so. And DTC definitely fits in this category as well. It perhaps didn't internalize for me right then until you were talking about it. But in the same way that newspapers have found it incredibly challenging to adapt to the world of Facebook controlling the eyeballs and them just being editorial because they basically have to jettison not just the deck chairs, but a whole bunch of other stuff off the boat in order to be lean enough to survive in such a world. The same is kind of true of the CPG companies on Facebook. If you're able to do a whole bunch of tracking and you've created a brand and a business that's designed to just peel off one person at a time, Facebook advertising is great, but trying to do brand advertising 
and competing against businesses that are so specific like that and so hyper-targeted when you're used to just spending on mass and you have an average product that it might not even really be economical to advertise on Facebook. I mean, maybe it sounds obvious to everyone, but it hadn't occurred to me until you were talking about it just then. I think that's exactly right. And the point to the publishers is a good one. The issue with these companies, and I've written about this in the context of publishers, it's not just that they need to cut costs. It's that everything about their business is misaligned for this new opportunity. For example, what was the response of publishers to going online? Let's pump out more content so we can put more ads against it. Yeah. Well, what happens when you pump out a bunch of quantity? The quality goes through the floor. And then like, oh, we're going to throw up a paywall and ask for subscriptions. Like subscriptions to what? To garbage? Oh, my garbage description is coming up. I better go pay my bills. Like, no one wants to subscribe to that. So I've been very optimistic about the future of local news, for example. Far more optimistic than most people. But core to my optimism, and this is long-term optimism, I absolutely see an opportunity for completely new kinds of publications and new kinds of journalists that are supported directly by people. And again, it doesn't take that many people. People don't think through the economics of this. You charge a 1,000 people $5 a month, you are earning more than the average journalistic salary in the U.S. The bar is way lower than people think. But what's entailed in that? It's entailed in your costs are very low because you just publish online. You don't need a lot of apparatus around it. Your quality is high, so people feel like they're getting something that matters. And like I said, I could see a local journalist having an offering where they send an email every day. That's what happened in the city. And half the time, the email says nothing happened. And that's actually a service they're providing because people can spend time and their attention on other things, feeling like they're up to date. That's such a fundamental mind shift from the way that traditional newspapers thought that I... I'm very skeptical that newspapers can make that transition. If anything, the sooner they can sort of get out of the way, the better so we can figure out and move forward to a way that actually makes sense on the internet. Right. Which brings us back to our CPG companies trying to pick up Harry's. So here's an issue that, that I think where a lot of DTC companies have gone wrong. Before we get back to Harry's, I wrote about this uh, a couple weeks ago when Brandless went out of business and Brandless was their brand, but you know, things would be $3, et cetera, et cetera. And they were selling all sorts of different items. And I think a mistake that a lot of publications make, a lot of DTC companies make is a mistaken pursuit of scale. And Particularly if you're manufacturing something, there's some aspect where you need to have scale. But if you're going to survive, you need to be aligned up and down your company. And what that means is, for example, you have free distribution. That's great. You also need to incorporate the internet into your cost structure so that your cost structure is dramatically cheaper than it might be otherwise, to take one example. So with Shashekri, there is absolutely, I think, a relationship between the fact it's super cheap for me to send out emails and the fact that my cost structure is super low. Like You need to keep that connection in place if you're going to have a sustainable company in the long term. Now, some companies like the New York Times, they can leverage their previous position into a great subscription business with a relatively high cost structure. But that's great for the New York Times. You don't have the New York Times brand, right? If you're actually trying to build something new, you need to go up and down your business from the top line to the bottom line. And it has to all be influenced by internet assumptions, not just part of it. And a lot of these companies saw, oh, we can avoid that retailer markup. And they didn't think through the rest of their value chain and the rest of their cost structure. And they ended up with businesses that were not built around internet assumptions, despite the fact their entire reason for being is that they thought they could take advantage of the internet. It's so hard to do that. 
one of the recurring themes that has played out over the course of this show is like the advantage of creating something purpose-built from scratch is so huge and the difficulty of taking something that's being built for something else and repurposing it and as you say go from top line through bottom line to do that and to do it effectively and try and start not from a blank sheet but start from a place and change it is so difficult and it happens i feel successfully so rarely and when it does it's like celebrated but it's just an incredible challenge to do something like that well it just requires a shift in mindset i mean like you see this problem in silicon valley where it's like well of course you're going to raise money and like there's a lot of companies and possibilities that I think are made possible by the internet that should not ever raise venture money. That doesn't mean they're bad businesses. It means that, you know, go back to the very beginning of Exponent where we talked about the jungle idea where there's these big platforms that tower above everything else and there's a ton of growth on the floor and there's not really much in between. And it follows that to our point about sort of, are you going to be the next PNG or are you going to be a niche razor seller? You got to decide that upfront because if you start raising money and start building a cost structure where you're on a path where it's PNG or bust, because that middle area, there's not many places to exit. It seems that again, though the narrow reasoning, like you said, makes sense. The FTC just did a pretty good job of clearing some, I wouldn't say brush, but clearing out some of the in-between. That's exactly right, because the option value is decreased for these sort of startups. But again, I wouldn't just blame the FTC. Harry's deserves some blame here, too. And so you think about it. What advantage did Harry's have in brick and mortar? Like literally the only advantage they had is that they're cheap. And that speaks to a company and a product that didn't actually have any real sort of sustainable strategy or advantage going forward. And this is where I go back to the value chains. I think the way that Harry's and a lot of other DTC companies thought about it is they looked at the existing value chain where you had R&D and manufacturing, then you had the logistics to get the stuff in the stores, and you had the retail to actually attract customers, bring them in. You had the shelf space, then you had the marketing to make customers aware of your product. And P&G integrated Big parts of this. They integrated the R&D, the manufacturing, the shelf space, the marketing. And by owning all of that, and as we talked about, them all working at scale and in lockstep with each other, they extracted huge amounts of profit for years and years and years and years. Like P&G, something like doubled their revenue every decade for like eight decades straight. Some crazy number like that. Like an incredible company. And so what happened was, though, you had these DTC companies come into the market and say, hmm, shelf space is no longer an issue. If we take out shelf space, then suddenly 40% of the margin is available or however much that retail, I think it's about 40% that retailers take the markup. Like we could use that 40% to make a better product, to get free distribution, and we can keep some of it for ourselves. And the problem is they were just like publishers looking at the internet and say, wow, now we can reach so many more readers. And they didn't realize that if some part of the value chain suddenly that used to be very valuable and very expensive suddenly becomes free, it's highly unlikely that the value chain is going to stay as it is. They miss the fact that a shift of integration or if a previously integrated piece suddenly becomes modularized or becomes zero, it follows that the rest of the value chain is going to completely reorganize itself and reset itself. And unfortunately, too many companies in lots of spaces failed to think about this dynamic nature of value chains. That's so interesting. It's not that I disagree that companies aren't thoughtful. And I'm interested in this idea that Harry's has some 
aspect of this to blame. Like it's impossible to disagree with what you just said around be thoughtful. Like if you don't assume that the value chain is just going to stand still, if you're able to change it or if you're able to take advantage of it, so is everybody else. But to a certain extent, the way the market was, was also a function of a cozy duopoly. And they saw an opportunity to potentially come into a duopoly. It wasn't just a value chain thing. It was also a market forces thing. These companies had just gently together raised prices, Schick and Procter and Gamble, and there was an opportunity for them to come in and potentially compete on price. And yes, you shouldn't do that without reference to the rest of the value chain. But honestly, I don't think that's a terrible thing either. And I'm not sure I want to blame them for doing it. In fact, I would say that's almost the markets working as they should. As an aside, doesn't it feel like you're on a tightrope every time you say Schick? Uh, yes, just a little <laughs> Anyhow, your point is well made. So let me follow on your point. I think I can square the circle for you. Okay. I would argue that the reason we had a cozy duopoly is because of the returns to scale, right? It actually ended up being a fairly natural state of affairs that you would have a few large players in CPG because of these massive returns to scale. And so that's sort of where we ended up. And to sort of have a bunch of players that could compete each other and driving down prices was not a stable state of affairs. And we kind of talk about this in the context of the car industry, right? Where you had a bunch of car players and it sort of consolidated into being just a few. And a big part of that was the returns to scale. You just had such advantages being larger that you would end up with like an equilibrium. The natural equilibrium in these markets that where scale really matters is to have a relatively few number of large players. So I would say that's why we were in the duopoly, okay? Now, you could say, again, in a vacuum, having more competition driving up prices is a good thing. I'm with you there, okay? So let's set that aside for a moment, and let's look at what actually happened. So what happened was these companies are like, wow, we can avoid the retailer markup, and we can sell to consumers directly. And like, well, how do we reach consumers? Well, like Dollar Safe Club, and I, and I wrote about this, they did this super viral video that was really funny and compelling and explained the value prop very, very clearly, Unfortunately, it turns out that making viral videos on command is not very easy. And two, if you're actually good at it, you would be silly to work for one company. You should be out there as a contractor selling your services to the highest bidder. And I actually know a couple of folks that are really good at this, and that's exactly what they do. And they make very good livings doing it. But the bigger issue is that the companies that control where that virality happens are Facebook in particular. And Facebook would rather harvest the value of virality themselves, then share it with someone else on the platform. And so what Facebook did is Facebook went in there and Facebook invested massive amounts of R&D. They aggregated all these users and then they put together this engine, this system to be able to reach those users at scale in a targeted way and all the things that we just talked about. And if you suddenly you step back, you look at the value chain, you still have manufacturing, you still have retail like offline stores, but you also have now these online stores totally modularized, right? You go to harrys.com and order your razors. You have the logistics, you have the marketing, but the marketing depends on huge amounts of R&D, huge amounts of audience of ad inventory, and Facebook integrated that piece together. This was the end result of the dynamic change in the value chain that you ended up with an integrated player as you would expect, and that integrated player was Facebook. Then what happened was 
as you would expect, the integrated player extracted most of the value from the value chain, in this case, by charging for ads. Now you had all these DTC players. It follows, remember, if one part of the value chain is integrated, the rest is modularized. That's exactly what we've seen. We've seen tons of DTC players. Guess what they're doing? They're all bidding against each other for ads and driving up the prices on each other. And suddenly you realize these companies are choking because they can't afford to acquire customers. And so what are they doing? Well, guess we'll go offline because it turns out PNG is hard to compete with, but it's better to compete with PNG than to compete with Facebook. And so you end up where Harry's is entirely built around these online assumptions, finding out their best way to survive is to go offline and take on PNG head on with basically nothing other than the fact we're cheaper. And how often is being the smaller scale player, does it work to compete by being cheap? Not very well. And this is what I mean why you had to think about the impact. If you didn't understand why is it that the CPG value chain only has a couple players? What are the factors that drove to that? And then you think through that process to, well, this new value chain, how is it going to transform? Who's actually spending the money here? Who's actually building an integrated piece? Then you would realize, oh, wait, we have a big problem. Yes, we say that 40% margin because we don't pay retailers, but we still need a way to acquire customers. That was amazing. I am going to think about this episode and last episode as a continual episode. And I feel like you just made the perfect articulation for the point I was trying to make at the end of last episode, which is effectively, we've got all this innovation happening in direct to consumer space, but the end result of so much of it is because at least in part, I would argue, there is a monopoly in reaching consumers and reaching consumer eyeballs that these consumer companies would rather take what they've learned online and compete in the offline world, which is mind-boggling. It's like a wounded animal getting backed into the corner. Like the promise of like all these targeted going after specific niches and so much of the internet. But because we have this monopoly in the space where advertising has happened, there are these creatures that are being born and the environment is so hostile online because effectively Instagram and Facebook have a monopoly on the advertising and just forcing people to bid it up. And that monopoly extends to them restricting supply and seeing prices increase as they do it, which to my mind suggests that they do have pricing power and could be behaving in an anti-competitive way. But it's so hostile for these online brands that, like you said, they would rather go offline and compete in a brick and mortar world against the old giants. Oh, you put a lot in there, some of which needs to be challenged. Okay, please go for it. Um, uh, No, so first off, I agree with you. And I made this point at the end of the article. Like I did sort of drive at this potential connection. There's a few things that need to be put in there. First off, just on a point of note, they're not restricting supply and prices going up. Prices are driven by an auction system. It's very difficult to make an argument that they are artificially inflating prices. The prices are high or low, quite literally based on who is bidding for the spots that are available. Number one, number two, Supply is dramatically increasing on Facebook and Instagram, whether it be just because new users are coming on board because of stories, et cetera, et cetera. And then number three, the market for digital advertising is massive, like effectively infinite. There's places to put advertising all over. People are going on Facebook and Instagram because they're providing superior ROI. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is a defense of your point. The reason I articulate these things is because you see a lot of people saying, why don't antitrust enforcers make like a monopsy argument against uh, the online advertising? I just articulated why. Like all the standards of whether or not there's a monopsony situation or a monopoly situation, 
don't exist online in part because of sort of the zero marginal cost nature of these goods. Like there can be no limitation on supply or on those wines. Again, I don't want to dwell on this point. I just want to put a pin on that specific wine that you said. I'm glad you've pulled me up on this because maybe I'm misremembering or maybe I have this wrong, but maybe it was a year or two. I remember reading a Facebook earnings call where Facebook representatives said that they were stopping the expansion of ad load per user. It had been increasing and they just decided to put a halt on it. And as a result of that action, prices started to go up. Now, in a perfect market, you would expect if Facebook stopped doing that and prices went up, then the ads would go somewhere else because advertisers seeking ROI would go to a different platform that was still increasing ad load. But it kind of implies to me that they have pricing power and they were pulling the levers of it. Yeah, I think this is where sort of the efficient market hypothesis sort of gets folks in trouble because yes, prices did go up, but I think the more likely explanation is that prices were too low previously. But again, just to double down on this, because it sort of makes your point, prices for Facebook ads are not set by Facebook. And I think just in general, there's so many aspects about how Facebook works and operates. And by the way, all this applies to Google. Also, we're just using Facebook because it's easier to say one or the other. People have a hard time grokking it internally. Like, so for a newspaper, for example, there's a price for an ad and you set the price and you either pay it or not. And no one's buying our ad. Guess we better lower the price and let people see the price is lower and maybe they'll come in. And you sort of do this back and forth to figure out what the perfect price is. Facebook is a perfect example and Google of companies that are built with internet assumptions from the very bottom, which means that the vast majority of advertising on Facebook does not involve humans at all. At least on like the Facebook side, you go up and you say, I want to reach these X number of consumers. I have this amount of budget to spend and you are in an auction and it's a real time auction where it happens in a split of a second where everyone that wants potential users is bidding and the price is established dynamically and the price is changing constantly. Like you could go with the same ad at different times of day and you could get different prices, not because there's anyone nefarious pulling the levers, but because there's an ongoing auction that's happening every second of every day. So the implication of this, it gets very, very dicey to accuse Facebook of price manipulation, given that we're as far away from Facebook-directed price manipulation as we could possibly be. The drivers of rising prices on Facebook after the amount of inventory, the growth slowed. Again, Facebook didn't reduce it, just the growth slowed, is a matter of advertisers choosing to spend more on Facebook than they did previously. This Furthermore, gets to my point about ROI and digital advertising, why it's such an important thing to understand about this market. Why did they choose to spend more on Facebook? Well, for an incremental dollar, they could say, well, guess I'll have to go check out Snapchat and figure out how it works. Say, ah, too much trouble. I'll just spend a little bit more on Facebook. Now, at some point, it would and should reach that point where like, you know what? I should really figure out how to advertise on Snapchat because this is getting too expensive for my taste. And this is frankly an indictment of Harry's and other folks in this space that they didn't develop the capabilities to go elsewhere. There's lots of advertising inventory on the internet elsewhere. It's just they couldn't figure out how to use it in a cost-effective way. Maybe there's no correlation between people who shave and people who use Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, so we would get that discussion with TikTok too as, as, as well, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> it took me a second to get that. I was all prepared for a super serious counterattack. And I was like, brace for it. And then you dropped the age <laughs> discrimination on me. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's right. But anyhow, the point being is, that's why to understand what's happening in the digital advertising market, you have to understand the advertisers themselves and what's driving their behavior because they are the ones determining 
price. They are the ones making Facebook and Google dominant by their choices to be on Facebook and Google. It's kind of like aggregation theory, but in a different vector. The issue here is not the suppliers. It's the demand side. The demand side is what is making these companies dominant. And I think part of that is just an ease of use thing. If you're on Facebook, it's trivial to also be on Instagram, where it's a lot of work to go on Snapchat. And that's always been the core of my issue is the marginal dollar for an advertiser. It's just so much easier to put on Instagram than to put on Snapchat. But this is a reminder that I need to be much more precise in what my concerns are about this market. Because all your traditional thinking on antitrust and price fixing and restricting supply don't apply on the internet at all. Yeah. So I understand. And to a certain extent, I agree. But then let me pose this question to you. If it wasn't just Facebook slowing down the growth of ad units per user, but actually restricting or decreasing the number of ad units per user, like they really were restricting supply and price went up as a result of that. And I realized I'm in hypothetical land because I thought that's what happened and I stand corrected. Would you say that that's anti-competitive and that we have a problem in that scenario? Well, I do hate hypothetical land, first and foremost. Okay. Number two, as long as we're in hypothetical land, we should also note that what actually happened was Facebook introduced Instagram stories and Facebook stories. And so their inventory actually exploded and the price per ad actually decreased, which is interesting because it's an example of where the price decreasing was actually to Facebook's benefit because it further reduced the sort of chance that an advertiser would figure out how to explore other platforms. But I guess that's my answer, right? Higher prices for Facebook, limited supply is bad because it increases the incentive for advertisers to figure out how to go elsewhere. So from Facebook's perspective, the more ads, the better, not just because they want to make more money, but because they want the marginal cost for an advertiser to buy one more ad to be very low. So that advertiser is not motivated to go elsewhere. And again, this drives people up the wall, but the competition only being a click away is frustrating because it's true. You can go to Bing.com. You can go to other places. It's the same thing for an advertiser. They could go advertise on Snapchat. They just continually choose not to. So my desire for more competition, I wish they would restrict the number of ads because that would make it more likely that advertisers would pursue the effectively infinite digital advertising space across the internet. I mean, basically what you're describing is a company with pricing power over ads online. Like, oh, they increased the ad unit and the price went down. That suggests they have pricing power. And now they might, like a traditional monopoly might have increased price and there would have been consumer harm and they've made it more money that way. In the internet, perhaps predatory behavior is actually decreasing price and eliminating the possibility for competition to come along. Again, though, Facebook doesn't control the price. And I think you're getting in pretty tenuous waters by saying Facebook's decisions around ad load in a feed are anti-competitive because A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, it affected the amount that advertisers are willing to pay in a free market, in a free auction, pay for an ad. Why? If, like you said, like advertisers only view that as the only place in town, they don't have control over price, but the lever is not price, the lever is supply. And if it's the same issue with the demand side, with the users, like at some point, 
the reason why Google is powerful is because users choose to use Google, right? Like we saw this in the EU. They struggled with a remedy for the Google shopping case. Google proposed one. EU was like, that sounds great. They actually ran it. EU was like, oh, this is a total failure. Why? Because the actual issue is user behavior. And unless you as a regulator are going to go in and start dictating to individual users what they do, I'm not saying it's not an issue. I'm saying the remedy is not at all apparent because you're trying to push on a string. And it's the same thing here. The problem in advertising is individual decisions by individual advertisers and trying to regulate what they do on the Facebook side, you're pushing on a string. Oh, but I think you're misunderstanding my proposed solution. I'm not trying to propose telling Facebook how many ads they do or don't run. I would then recommend breaking up Facebook and Instagram and you would then have a more perfect market where in the same way, Harry's going in against Schick and Procter and Gamble resulted in price competition, like actually breaking apart Facebook and Instagram would result in this no longer being what feels like a monopoly situation over the supply, there being more competition and advertisers choosing to go other places for all the dynamics that you've described. Yes. And that's the reason why I've always bemoaned the Instagram acquisition in the first place because of this dynamic. So then we're just back in the same argument of, you know, what's your legal justification for doing this? Right. Like, right, right. What is the consumer harm, et cetera, et cetera. So we're back at last week. So I agree. It's a continuation of last week. I think we did a better job articulating the harm that resulted from Facebook having Instagram. Again, the harm is it increased the marginal cost for an advertiser to go elsewhere. Like that's where the harm actually happened. And here's the issue that I see. I've been talking about this specific issue for years and I'm actually very grateful we had this podcast conversation because I feel like I articulated it probably better just now than I have in five years. And if it's taken me five years to get an articulation that I feel pretty good about, I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but I think I have a pretty good grasp of the internet generally and how it works and impacts markets. Like we're getting in very risky territory to have regulators that I have just a little bit less faith in to understand this at a very core level and then to be able to act and understand all the counterfactuals and all those sorts of things. Again, it's not that I don't see the benefit. I can absolutely see the benefit. In fact, I would argue I can see the benefit more clearly than just about anyone. It's my real concern that in the pursuit of the perfect, we end up sacrificing the good. The disconnect that I wanted to clear up was like, you're right, pushing it string. If you're regulating at the level of individuals, then it's not, it won't work. Like, and that's stupid, like trying to get it down at that level. This is how many ad units you must do, or this is what social media thing you'll use. Like, that's obviously not going to work. So 100% agree. I guess the point is, it's through a certain lens. This is the cost that I see on my side of the argument, which is we have a direct-to-consumer company that's super cool that has all this capability. And it's because of what Facebook's done with Instagram. This is one example where they then felt it was safer to go into the bricks and mortar retail space and then they can't get acquired. And with all all the investment that's now not going to happen, all the entrepreneurs that are not going to go after this space. And this is just like shaving. This is just like one aspect of one CPG area, like how much other pain is being inflicted by them having the monopoly. And again, I don't want to diminish. But I think we need to be 
careful in attributing blame 100% to Facebook, right? This is the point I got at earlier. I think a lot of these companies, you know, I haven't dug into Harry's financials, but like say Brandless last week, wildly out of whack cost structures that don't make any sense for a world of zero marginal costs. Like, yes, there's an aspect. If you make things, there is absolutely return to scale. That's a real thing. But I think there's far too many of these companies that tried to take advantage of the internet without baking in internet assumptions into every part of their business. And yes, that resulted in them being easy prey for Facebook for all intents and purposes. But does that mean that's Facebook's fault for filling a part of the market that naturally lends itself to there being a company? Again, Facebook has this part of the market because of massive amounts of investment, billions of dollars in R&D. Same thing with Google, same thing with Amazon in their dominance. They spend a lot, a lot of money to achieve this. And there's an aspect where these companies were kind of built with business plans that assumes they get that part for free. And it's like, why would you think that you would get for free what costs another company billions of dollars to build? Agreed. But if you view this as like a fundamental part of society in the same way, reaching consumers potentially over the telephone. And yeah, when you rely on there being a telephone network and you don't rely on the prices. And I realized that Facebook doesn't set the price, whereas AT&T might have set the price, but if like that's a fundamental aspect of society and how you reach consumers and there is a monopoly standing in the way that is somehow extracting more profits than they otherwise should, should there be more competition, then maybe you're right. Maybe there are too many of these companies and maybe they didn't have a proper business model and they were just assuming, oh, we get everything for free and there's no return to the people that own the platform, which obviously isn't tenable either. But maybe it's the other extent, maybe because they are the only game in town, maybe because they've spent all this money, including acquiring a competitor, which might have made the advertising space flourish more and be more competitive. Maybe there are less of these companies or more of them aren't succeeding than otherwise would be. Again, you just sort of waved your hand over. Yeah, they're not setting prices like AT&T, but <laughs> it's not like AT&T at all. It's not like they are strong because users choose to be there and advertisers choose to be there. There is no limitation on supply when it comes to digital advertising. This is why, for example, I'm much more concerned about the whole double click area, right? Because how can we figure out a way for advertising broadly to be competitive? Well, if that's locked in more, that's a bigger issue. I get the point you want to make and I feel it and I recognize it, but we have to keep in mind that we have sort of perfect knowledge that these prices are the market clearing prices, right? Like where is the harm? The harm is that these companies ended up having poor business models. It turns out selling razors takes a certain cost structure and P&G figured out a way to manage that and to sell razors. And now it's on Harry's to figure out a way to do it from their own perspective. And again, I hate to use this word and we're getting people mad, but there's a, a sense of entitlement here where at the end of the day, you're paying an ad for Facebook that you chose to pay that Facebook did not set the price, did not choose anything. You could go to Snapchat and run an ad there. And if you find that Facebook ads work better than Snapchat ads, that means that Facebook is probably undercharging, right? Like, again, there is no lock-in here. I've never claimed there is lock-in. What I'm claiming is that... I mean, I, I, not to pick on you, but it's hard to make an antitrust argument if there's no lock-in. Okay. So if Facebook then bought Snapchat and the market dynamics existed exactly the same way, would it be anti-competitive then? Well, this is the whole issue. And I'm pushing on this. I've been pushing on this for a few years. How do we figure out a way 
to think through these market implications. And this takes me back to sort of this article. It's a good sort of segue. You know, the other company that I talked about in this was Credit Karma, where Credit Karma was acquired by Intuit. And there is an obvious anti-competitive concern, which is Credit Karma has a free tax filing service and Intuit makes most of their money from TurboTax. Now, why does Credit Karma have a free tax filing service? Well, Credit Karma has a bunch of free services. They have a free thing to check your credit score, a free thing to organize your personal finances, free, 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 free. How do they make money? Well, on the site, they will direct you to or recommend a credit card based on your spending profile, for example. They can say, well, you spend a lot of money on restaurants and travel. This credit card fits very well. You'll get points back, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get a big kickback from the credit card company. As you might imagine, the lifetime value of a credit card customer is very, very high, which means the kickbacks can be quite significant. And they're making quite a bit of money. But what is their value? And you look at it from sort of an analog off-world standpoint. It's like you don't make anything. You don't even transact with your customers. You don't even have a Stripe account. Right. Like they're like, what's going on here? And what their value is, is they have a big audience. They have 90 million users in the US, which is a good portion of the adult population. They have a huge presence in sort of the younger people. And that is what is valuable. Like that's the valuable part. Instead of having to go to Facebook to acquire an audience, they acquired an audience by building valuable products that people liked using SEO and things along those nature. And now that that's super valuable to into it. So my argument is, well, you could see the FTC coming saying, sorry, can't combine two tax preparation things. Credit card would be like, fine, we'll spin it off or we'll sell it to someone else. And then if saying, okay, that's fine. No competition concerns. And now Intuit has this customer acquisition monster that fits perfectly in sort of their portfolio of what they're trying to accomplish because that's where the value is. And so two points. One is just the point about value. But then two is the FTC's thinking about markets is a slam dunk for Harry's. Obviously, it's a problem. Look at prices going up. Look at how it spurred competition in the market. But actually, that was a deal for like, what, $1.3 billion? Small potatoes, relatively speaking, because the real action, what actually matters, what is actually meaningful in the market is owning demand, not controlling supply. And our entire thinking around antitrust and the FTC's mandate is completely unsuited for this world. I couldn't agree more with what you just said. I think all this talk about antitrust is totally in the wrong direction. I've definitely written this in Daily Update. I think I've said it on this podcast. These issues are only going to be solved through the legislative process, through new laws, because what we have on the books is just not suited to this environment. And I think a lot of the pushback against Facebook and Google is a sense of trepidation about how big they are and how powerful they are. And people put that in the words of antitrust. But as we just saw on this podcast, again, if you don't mind me picking on you, when you start pushing your finger on the antitrust problems, you realize you're pushing on a string. To my point, there's actually not an issue here. What's the issue with the market with prices that are set and fair to everyone? There's not actually an issue. And the issue is that people don't like how big they are. But the answer to that then is to deal with it politically. I agree it's problematic as a member of society, as a citizen, how powerful these companies are. But the answer is not to jury rig antitrust and end up causing far more problems than there are, is to actually deal with it through the legislative process. Yeah, 
again, I'm 100% with you. I wondered why you were pushing against me. And, and now I think I understand where it's coming from, which is, I don't think you're necessarily opposed to what I'm proposing. You're just against how I'm proposing it, which is I'm using the language of the past. And I'm with you 100% in terms of antitrust primarily, especially in the United States, is focused around consumer welfare. And it's really freaking hard to make a case around consumer welfare when it comes to these demand-driven industries or demand-driven companies, particularly ones that are giving things away for free. And Credit Karma and Facebook slash Instagram and Google, they're fine, but it's Harry's when there's actual price competition for things that are being made they're getting caught up in the crosshairs. So in so much as like the disagreement with me is like, I'm trying to back it into antitrust and I'm using that as a poor proxy when really I should have been talking about size or potentially whether they're a monopoly in so much as that's the disagreement. 100% call me out. Like, okay, I won't use- Sorry, if you say call me out, can I call you out again? Yeah, please. Because I would actually double down on this specific point. You sort of specified the American approach of consumer welfare. Yes. And the implication of that is that the EU approach of market structure and competition is better. And my argument is actually that's just as bad. We've seen it. It's failed. The problem in these markets is not market structure, it's consumer behavior and consumer choice. And so my argument is not that the American approach is obsolete, it's that antitrust as an entire discipline is not suited to the dynamics driving these companies, which is why, just as we had to have an antitrust movement in the Sherman Act and et cetera, 125 years ago, the only sustainable actually impactful way to deal with this arena. And again, to deal with this sense broadly that these companies are so big and powerful, what do we do about it? Is new laws, call it something else, call it big company legislation. I don't know what it is, but aggregation theory. There's one point I want to make here. You said that the European approach doesn't work. And obviously, I've been criticizing parts of the American approach, but I actually think there are aspects of both of them that do. I think the American remedies do work and the European diagnosis does work. The Europeans have done a particularly good job of diagnosing where there have been problems, but they haven't in terms of what they've then gone on to, at least relatively to America, I feel like, at least what they've gone on to do has, as you described, not been successful. I say in the United States, the problem is the diagnosis of the problem around consumer welfare has not been successful, though the remedy I keep calling for is an American remedy. And maybe some combined aspect of the two of them is the right approach. What is the theoretical structure as to why breaking companies apart will not just result in them coming back together and there being a dominant player? Like If you actually think through the dynamics of these markets, that's what we would expect. And by the way, we've seen that happen. Like there's just a couple of big phone companies, despite the fact we broke them together because the dynamics of it being one big network were so compelling. Again, you say that with a quite a large degree of confidence that I'm not sure is warranted. Sure. But I mean, isn't that the human condition? Like we wait until something gets bad enough to fix it and then we fix it and then it will probably proceed to get bad again. Like, no, the human condition I see is your insistence that this is an antitrust issue. I'm going to make this political point a different way. I'm going to make it personal, okay? People thought we were personal on the podcast before. I, we're really going to get personal. Oh, here we go. You, James, are uncomfortable with how big and powerful these companies are. The problem is you don't have the language to articulate that discomfort, so you're talking about ads. 
And I'm coming at you and I'm saying, it's actually a perfect marketplace. It's an auction. Advertisers go anywhere. You just go anywhere. And I am totally right. And as long as you are trying to make your political argument, this is what I mean by politics, you have a discomfort about the strength of these companies and you're trying to cloak it in the language of ad prices. (laughs) If you're uncomfortable with these companies, come out and say, I'm uncomfortable with these companies. I want the government to regulate them because I don't want them to be so powerful. That's the issue. And there's nothing wrong with that. A big problem is so many of these folks are making arguments that are easy. It's like, remember we talked about before how I didn't like Tim Cook saying that these companies sell data because it distracts from the actual point, which is, yes, there is an argument about the amount of data that they have. But when you say they sell data, Mark Zuckerberg gets to go to Congress and say, we don't sell data and completely dodge the question. You're doing the same thing. Your question, your concern is that Facebook is too big and powerful. But instead of saying, I'm concerned that Facebook is too big and powerful. I want the government to restrict them. You're saying, well, the ad prices, what happens is they restrict supply and it filters through and that makes the price higher. And this advertiser and you end up off on an island that has nothing to do with your actual concern. So if you want to address the fact that you have a political concern, that's what I mean. You need a political response, which is actually making a new law that doesn't deal with ads, that deals with the fact they're big companies. And what are we going to do about that as a society? You're right. Grant me this. Grant me like 15 seconds on the ad market. I do think there is something going on in there, but you're right. Like, I don't like the fact that perhaps Harry's and perhaps other businesses and Facebook squeezing all this money out of them, but maybe that is a perfect market. Maybe it's not. And I think maybe because of some of the dynamics we've talked about, it's easier on Facebook and Instagram that maybe they have it, but you're right. And it wasn't until you said it like that. Just then, that I myself realized that that's exactly what I've been doing. Well, it's not just you. It's like everyone. All this antitrust debate and argument is, I think, a misdirection and a smokescreen about the actual concerns people have. I mean, it's like talking about election integrity when the reality is people are mad that President Trump is president, right? Like, it was like, what are we actually talking about here? And if we lose sight of that, we're going to end up in arguments way off in the wilderness that is ultimately to Facebook's credit. What's yeah, Facebook's yeah. response to the election thing? It's that, well, we're actually going to double down and spend way more money, which is another way. And by the way, government should regulate so that everyone has to do this. They've effectively dug a new moat and called it election security. Like that's what happens when we're not precise about our language and what we actually want and what we actually want to achieve and how it needs to be achieved. It's funny, like of all the people I should have been aware of this, like everybody who's been listening for a while knows the journey that I've been on around Facebook and like where my original discomfort comes from, like the personal realization that they had this data on me and they were being reckless with it. And like, again, there's still 10%. I've seen firsthand like, the effect of the advertising thing, but maybe you're right. Maybe it is a perfect market and maybe that would be happening anyway. And like the concern is probably around the size. Yeah. Credit where credit is due. I'll admit where I've been misdirected. I think I've been misdirected on this one. You're right. Again, it would be better if Instagram was not a part of it. I think it's more likely there'd be more modularization in the market, more competition. I've admitted that all wrong. So my concern, I guess, is two levels. One, do regulators really understand this market to the extent necessary to take such drastic action, particularly if it's likely to just, in the long run, circle back to the same sort of dominant situation we have now. Two, where is the actual harm in the dominance? But then three, is this actually what we're concerned about? Like, what are we actually talking about? And I think a lot of the discussion around these companies, particularly in terms of antitrust, 
is actually much more about political power. And I don't say that degradingly, like you just want to play politics. No, politics is how we organize society. I mean that in the capital P political science term. And we should be honest about that. And I think being honest is the first step to actually accomplishing something. Why do I feel guilty about admitting that I don't like them because they're big as opposed to admitting that I don't like them because I feel like they have control over the advertising. I don't know. There's something about this that makes me feel less comfortable, but perhaps it's because I'm more out in the land of feelings and less out on the land of laws. No, I feel the same thing in regards to speaking out against the China stuff before. It's a lot easier to be cold and analytical and point to, oh, there's price issues, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot harder to say, look, these are the principles that I have. This is what I believe. And I think this is wrong. Hmm. Yes. For whatever reason, I found it easier to talk about the China one for these reasons than this one. But yeah, again, I don't know what it was about you going personal, like what you said a few minutes ago before they prefaced it with, I'm going to make it personal, but that got me to internalize it. So thank you. Well, that's the problem is because you feel the Facebook bigness personally. So it's harder for you to articulate it. I feel the China threat personally. So it's harder for me to articulate it. I think it's the exact same sort of explanation. Thank you. Very good. Well, um, we will not be here next week. I'll be traveling. We'll see when the next one is, but uh, it was good talking to you and I will talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Have a good one, mate.